Welcome to episode 190. My name is Jim Babbles, Workplace Relations Legal Officer. And here today I have with me Bree Marinia, Workplace Relations Advisor. Hi, Bree. How are you going? Hi, Jim. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Now, Bree, today we'll be talking about WorkCover and working from home. Yes, we will. Jim, um, WorkCover can be a minefield, as we know. So where's the starting point in any claim? That's a great question. The basic starting point is that the employee suffers from either an injury or illness, and this occurs out of or in the course of employment. This essentially is then comprised, I guess, of two factors. One, uh, is it an incident or an injury simpliciter, or in other words, an injury in its own right? Or two, is it a contributing factor? Sections 20 and 21 of the Workplace Injury Rehabilitation and Compensation Act, or the WIC, or WIC sorry, uh, deal with lodging a claim, acknowledging a claim. It is also important that employers have available material and paraphernalia about what to do when an injury occurs. So what do you mean by contribution factors? Yeah, listen, essentially this is a situation where an injury or illness uh, is not caused by a specific incident, but over time by work-related factors. The contribution, at least in Victoria, must be of a significant factor. And what are the most common types of injuries? Listen, historically, most injury claims were in fact physical, but nowadays this has changed really with psychiatric injury claims being on the rise. And what are the factors or key indicators that lead to workplace injuries? Listen, they're quite varied. Uh, for physical injuries, they're usually incident-driven, such as slipping or lifting heavy items. On occasions, they may be attributed to inconsistent work practices, such as, say, such as unsafe practices, I guess, i.e. lifting without restriction. Uh, specific to health, uh, these do involve injuries that have historically been categorised as twisting. And this needs to be contrasted with psychiatric injuries. And these are attributed to, I guess, the following factors, you know, high job demand or low job demand, poor support, poor workplace relations or relationships, sorry, uh, low role clarity, poor organisational change management, poor organisational justice, you know, poor environment conditions, you know, even remote or isolated work, high workloads, and probably the last one, violent or traumatic events. I guess the other factor is one that we really must consider is what I call the dreaded B word, also known as bullying. And then that is definitely a, a factor that leads to psychiatric injury claims. But right now, I guess in the post-COVID environment, you know, I touched on earlier about, you know, remote or isolated work, we must also throw in the, you know, the mix of say fatigue into the equation as well. Yeah, so you touched on the growing trend of claims as well as a rise in psychiatric claims. Is there an onus on employers to be proactive? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the monetary costs are quite alarming if, if you know, they're not proactive. Uh, for instance, the Black Dog Initiative, which is a not-for-profit which monitors mental health in the workplace, has now estimated that, you know, mental illness costs, you know, in excess now $4.7 billion in absenteeism. Um, also, you know, Safe Work Australia have also published uh, a report, I think it was on their website in June of 2018, which estimated the cost to be probably in excess of $6 billion. So as you can see, no matter which way we measure it, uh, you know, absenteeism and uh, mental health is, is a real issue. Uh, but this, you know, this doesn't even factor in, you know, physical injuries, really. So there is an onus on employers to not only be cautious, but also proactive. And you mentioned the word onus, but what obligations does the WIRC Act impose on employers once a claim is accepted? Specifically, what is the employment obligation period? 
Listen, very stringent ones. I guess the view is that, em, that the employee must be guided and assisted throughout the process. The philosophy really comes down to that the employee cannot be discriminated against. And on this basis, we have the employment obligation period. Uh, pursuant to sections 103 and 119 of the WIRC Act, this is defined as a period of 52 weeks in which a worker has an incapacity for work contributed to by the work-related injury and commences on whichever of the following dates is earliest. And it's really four. One, the date the employer receives the first certificate of capacity. Two, the date the employer receives a work cover claim. Three, the date the employer is notified by a work cover that a claim for weekly payments has been made. And lastly, the date the employee is notified by a work cover that a certificate of capacity has been provided. The 52 weeks also do not need to run consecutively. There may be periods where the worker is able to work pre-injury duties and hours, and these weeks essentially are not counted as part of the employment obligation period. Also, during the uh, you know, obligation period, section 103 of the, of the Act uh, requires that an employer provide suitable employment or pre-injury employment, depending on the capacity of the worker. In other words, if your claim is still active when the employer obligation period finishes, your employer is no longer required to provide suitable work or pre-injury work. Now, has the landscape changed since people are working from home? Yeah, listen, it, it has. And, and yes, we must really acknowledge that the injuries and what type of OHS risks uh, exist are somewhat now different in morphology, mainly because of COVID. We can categorise, I guess, the, the uptake of claims that we're seeing as follows. You know, firstly, sexual harassment, harassment and bullying. And really, this is with um, employers having less direct supervision over employees and employers may experience increased difficulty in detecting and investigating complaints of inappropriate workplace behaviour, such as sexual harassment. Secondly, musculoskeletal injuries. You know, so, you know, to give you an example, I mean, um, the regulators recently have issued a warning about the risk of prolonged sitting in the context of working from home. And musculoskeletal injuries or physical injuries are caused by prolonged sitting, you know, and these are one of the most common types of, you know, compensation claims that are made. Also, you know, we need to really factor in psychiatric injuries that are attributed to fatigue and isolation, and this would definitely be a growing trend. You know, psychiatric injuries as a result of, you know, cyberbullying, I mean, increased, you know, whilst no data really exists at present, this has been an ongoing problem, I guess, in teenage and school bullying. And I guess with increased usage of IT platforms due to COVID-19, we really need to consider cyberbullying as a source of liability for work cover. And I guess the last one, and I think the one that's probably been a little bit most problematic and has definitely been in the uh, in the news a little bit lately, has obviously been uh, domestic violence at home. You know, we obviously have um, personal leave for domestic violence in, in our EBAs, but it's also very important to consider that there has definitely been, uh, quite unfortunately, an increase of domestic violence in the, in the home. And has the same standard, at least from how work can dictate working from home arrangements applied to work cover claims? Listen, by and large, yes. The only difference has been that work cover claims from home have historically been treated, I guess, a little bit more sensationally. Partly this is because there is a fine line between work-related and not work-related. Uh, there was a 2015 decision, uh, Z-Bath v Simon Back, uh, Blackwood. It was a, um, a Queensland Industrial Relations Commission decision, and that really got the ball rolling, so to speak. What happened in this decision? In this case, Mr. Z, Mr. Zebarth, the Apple, the Apple, I'm sorry, was employed as a fleet services manager for for a transport company uh, based in Cairns. Uh, the Apple uh, alleged that he suffered a work-related injury to his lower back as a result of slipping on wet tiles in his home of all things. Uh, it was agreed in the appeal that the applicant's contract with the company required him to undertake, I guess, the following: 
you know, work 55 hours per week, two, make himself available to work additional hours as required, three, make himself available to be on call, and lastly, be responsible for maintenance and repair issues. Uh, the Appellant in this particular matter was supplied with a work phone, which uh, the Appellant assigned a distinctive ringtone of all things. He stated that it was his obligation to answer the mobile phone as soon as it rang to ensure that his responsibilities regarding the safety, maintenance and repair of the company's fleet were met. Uh, the appellant stated they had been previously chastised by the company of all things for not answering his work phone, believe it or not. Uh, really what happened is on the day of the alleged incident, the applicant the appellant was showering at around 10pm when he heard the ringtone. Uh, as he got out of the shower to answer the phone, he slipped and he fell, but he managed to catch himself before hitting the ground by grabbing the vanity in the toilet. Uh, at about 4 a.m., he woke himself to get ready for work and felt what and reported what was excruciating pain in the lower back, which actually was radiating into his right leg. And on the basis of the medical evidence, it was accepted as a result of the sleep, he'd suffered a disc protrusion to his lower back. It actually went on appeal to the um, Industrial Relations Court of Queensland, and there was determined that there was a causal, causal relationship between the appellant's employment and the injury. And in fact, he was stated that, I guess I'm not quote, the proximity of time between the fall in the bathroom and the onset of pain in the absence of any competing causal incident leads one to conclude on the balance of probabilities that the employment was a significant contributing factor to the injury. Whilst this is you know, somewhat an old decision, at least six years old, we must be mindful that this really can be translated to the COVID normal world as we, as we speak. So Jim, you mentioned earlier that there's a risk of new types of work-related injuries, stresses. Specifically, you mentioned cyberbullying and domestic violence. Can you elaborate further for us? Yeah, listen, absolutely. I guess the recent and really tragic case that comes to mind is Workers' Compensation, the nominal insurer, V. Hill, 2020 decision, which really explores employee safety when working from home. And, and really, uh, I, I guess, where where is the fine line when we're working from home? Uh, this, I mean, the facts in this tr tr case are quite tragic and it's very unique. It involved, I guess, um, overlapping interpersonal issues between people that both work closely together and were also in a romantic relationship and also raising children together. Um, essentially, the facts of the case are where personal, professional and work from home all collide. Um, you know, Mitchell, Mich sorry, Michelle Carroll and Stephen Hill were were involved with our romantic partners and they were also employed as financial advisors by a, fa a family company i believe it was named uh, hill and associates hill and associates sorry and this carried on a business for the uh, from the family home and they're based in, in new south wales um mr hill in uh had been suffering and had suffered from paranoid delusions and um really the paranoid delusions extended so far as that miss carol his partner really was up to no good in terms of trying to steal clients and ruin him financially and personally. On 16 June 20, uh, sorry, the 16th of June, he actually killed Miss Carroll. He was charged with her murder, but was actually found not guilty in the grounds of mental illness. Uh, they also, Miss Carroll also had two children, a teenage son and a newborn baby. And the children actually made claims for death benefits under the Workers' Compensation Act of New South Wales. Uh, as the company had actually been uh, deregistered and was no longer um, uh, trading during this period, the nominal insurer actually stepped in um, as pursuant to subrogation and, and essentially denied the claims. 
the matter actually went all the way to appeal to the New South Wales Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal essentially dismissed the insurer's appeal, which had found that uh, Ms Carroll's death occurred in the course of employment and arose out of her employment and that the employment was a substantial contributing factor to her death. And really upheld the decision and found as follows. One, the evidence showed that Ms Carroll was working from home. She was definitely on call at around 7.30 a.m. Her bedroom, you know, entire, I guess, house contained work files. And she worked throughout the house, you know, in all rooms, all parts of the house, and she was always answering phone calls. Therefore, she was either, you know, um, working or doing work-related duties. She was on call at the time she was killed. Um, you know, Mr Hill's paranoid beliefs related to the way Ms Carroll actually performed her work duties. It wasn't really, I guess, is she having an affair type situation? It wasn't anything about that. It definitely was about work. Uh, and therefore, you know, the, uh, Ms. Carroll's employment was therefore a predominant cause of her death. And lastly, the evidence, you know, clearly indicated there was a direct connection and link between the delusions, Ms. Carroll's employment, and ultimately the tragic circumstances of her death. The Court of Appeal essentially upheld the Commission's decision and essentially um, ordered the nominal insurer to pay $450,000 in death benefits to the two dependent children. Wow, it's a very interesting case. Yeah. Um, are there any final thoughts for us? Listen, I guess probably this is, it's still to some extent working from home is a novel area, uh, but employees can do a, a number of things to prepare. Uh, one, welfare checks on, on the most um, elderly, youngest and vulnerable employees. And this can be done, you know, by calling regularly, etc. I think Australia Post recently in the uh, in one of um, uh, Bernard Salt's presentations indicated, you know, posties would even be undertaking welfare checks into the future. So I think welfare checks on employees are, are really good. To maintain, you know, regular team meetings to ensure staff isolation does not become an issue. Three, you know, update existing policies and procedures to cover working from home arrangements where possible. For example, sexual harassment, harassment and bullying procedures. You know, um, four, provide guidance or checklist to employees regarding good ergonomic practices, you know, like chairs, uh, desks, you know, computer uh, locations on, on desks. Conduct training on establishing and maintaining, you know, a safe, you know, office environment. Five, undertake, you know, ergonomic assessments, like I've clearly indicated, around uh, working from home, but really extend it to the IT space. And lastly, maintain calendar checks to ensure that staff are taking breaks, you know, phones are diverted, etc. Wonderful. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Bree.